Good morning. Thank you. (laughs) Our reading this morning comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. If you would have a seat this morning, we're going to pray God's blessing over his word. If you would join with me in that endeavor. God and Father, you have spoken to us by your sure and mighty word and uh, by looking at it, by listening to it, by hearing it, by doing it, uh, Lord, you transform us. Uh, Father, I pray that you would make your word mighty in our minds, uh, transformative in our hearts, but Lord, that it would result also in righteousness in our hands. Lord, we love you. We trust all of these things uh, to your name and ask you that you would bless your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, kids, I I don't know if you've ever heard of this Spanish explorer's name, but have you ever heard of Ponce de Leon? Anybody? You can raise your hand. Okay? Does anybody know what he was famous for, specifically a kid? Don't be afraid to be wrong. I'm guessing that Ollie might. No, he doesn't? He was raising his hand. Do you know? He made lots of voyages. Uh, The voyages, though, that he was after were something that, at least in our uh, tradition, our oral tradition, is after something very specific. He was after the Fountain of Youth. He uh, supposedly explored the peninsula of Florida looking for uh, the Fountain of Youth. But I found out something this week that was really specific, and that is, is that that might not be true. Uh, In all of his writings, he kept careful notes, and uh, unless he has an eraser and felt very ashamed of the fact that he never found it, uh, we actually don't know by his own personal testimony that he did that, or at least that's what I've read and was told this week. Uh, We don't know that he was after the Fountain of Youth, or to the extent that he was, we don't know that he, uh, you know, was actually obsessed in the search for it. But there are all kinds of mythologies that kind of surround immortality. Uh, So we... uh, 
make up stories about vampires who uh, supposedly live forever unless you stab them in the heart with a stake of wood. I'm sure that somebody will correct me about that. I'm not very into vampire-like mythology, but that's at least my understanding, is that they uh, fly around and part of their gig, part of their shtick, is that they live forever unless they encounter a stake to the heart. Uh, We also uh, make up stories about zombies. These are living dead people. They're uh, beings which are somehow both dead and alive at the same time. We make up uh, stories. There is a a common actual mythology right now, today, about Keanu Reeves uh, of uh, Bill and Ted fame. Uh, Evidently, the man has not aged a wink over the last 30 years, and so conspiracy theorists have started imagining that he is either some type of time traveler or somebody that possesses immortality. We make up all kinds of things because there is something deep in the human heart that fears death and that wants to live forever. I remember a few months ago actually listening to a PhD, uh, you know, student that was studying some of these things, things that would help us live longer. And what he said I thought was really interesting in terms of a perspective. He said that the greatest unsolved problem in humanity is aging, that that's the greatest unsolved problem is aging. And when you think about it, you can imagine why somebody might think that. He went on to describe the process of trying to solve that in a very interesting way. He said, you don't need to find just one solution. You need to find a mixture of solutions, and all you really need to do is increase uh, life expectancy by one year every year. That's what uh, scientists should be trying to aim at. It's not just one kind of you know, silver bullet for the problem of mortality, but rather that we should be always trying to increase things just one year at a time. And at some point, if you go over a year, it could be possible for somebody to continue on living in that way. Now listen, I won't bury the lead here. I'm a little incredulous. I don't think that we're going to come upon a uh, magic serum of some kind that is going to allow us to live forever in these bodies. I I don't think that uh, it's just that one problem either. You could try to solve the problem of how to live forever, but if you don't understand why someone would want to go on living forever, I'm not sure that you've really solved the problem either. What if you increase life expectancy without increasing the quality of life or even have the quality of life go down? So it's not just how do you live forever, it's why would you want to? Why would you want to actually be a being that exists forever? I want to put it a different way. It's kind of a thought experiment. What if all of us woke up tomorrow in a world where a scientist of some obscurity and some nation of some obscurity uh, solved the problem? What if they did it? What if the main headline on every na- uh, like national newspaper in the world was, we did it. We finally solved the problem of aging and death. What if somebody had actually created the technology to resurrect dead people? This would immediately become the greatest technology in human history. This would be immediately known as the greatest technological advance for human flourishing. And it would open up a new frontier of both what is possible and the problems that we face You wouldn't have to spend much time thinking about it to know that uh, some nation somewhere would want a monopoly on that kind of technology. They would seek to not only have it, but to be the only one that does have it. 
The nation would seek not only a monopoly on that technology, but would uh, uh, soon find that other nations would fight to try to get that. You would see the rich and wealthy of the world actually flocking to whatever nation that is to try to get access to this everlasting life. That nation would become very rich. The best and brightest would be given access to that technology almost immediately so that we could keep the Elon Musks of the world alive to help create more and more things for us to consume. The best and the brightest would have an advantage. We would have a a new field of ethical theory trying to decide which of the 8 billion of us could actually receive this kind of technology, you see that it doesn't take too long for you to understand that this would be not only a huge grace, but a huge problem. Why? Because in the ability to resurrect and preserve life, there is great power. Those nations who have access to the power to raise someone from the dead and preserve their life forever would flourish, and that would represent power. That nation would become the greatest nation of all the nations for all of time because there would be no death in that place. The ability to give and to sustain and to regenerate life is power. But its goodness or its evil also depends not just on the how, but the why. Not just how we would do this, but the purpose of it. Why would we want everlasting life? And that's where I think that Colossians can speak to this morning. And that is that God's power raises the dead so that they might live with him. So it's not just God kind of, uh, you know, in general, being able to raise people. This passage actually tells us that it's his power that does so. God's power raises people for the dead and then also gives us the why so that they might be alive with him, so that they might live with him. How long? So that they might live with him forever. So we get both the how and the why. The how is the power, the why is to live with him forever. But there's kind of three things that I want to explore, three basic kind of questions that I think we need to dig up, kind of unearth this morning. The first is, who is Jesus? Right out of this passage, is there anything here that we can pull out to tell us who Jesus is? The second thing is declarative. Do not be fooled. Don't be fooled. And finally, we will talk about how we were raised to live. But we need to understand in the midst of asking these questions of who is Jesus, don't be fooled, and why were we raised to live, we need to recognize that we're just kind of dropping into a passage here. We're parachuting in. If you aren't normally with us, you need to know that our regular rhythm is not the pastors just deciding what our people need to hear, but actually trusting the Word of God to take us to the place that God wants us to go, trusting God's Word to speak to us. So we normally just Go through books of the Bible. But this morning, we found ourselves in Colossians 2, and we're going to be going in and through it with intricate detail, so please be there. Colossians, the book, the letter, rather, was written by Paul. Right at the very beginning of Colossians, it actually says that Paul is an apostle. He has the authority that Jesus Christ has given him to teach the things that Christ wants him to teach. He's not just an apostle by his own will, but it specifically says that he is an apostle by the will of God, and he's writing to the Colossians by the will of God. He's writing with Timothy, 
his trusted friend and brother and fellow church planter, and they are writing to the church at Colossae. Now, we need to know a little bit about how that church got there, because it's not obvious that Paul went there and planted that church. We actually kind of think, uh, through some of the uh, uh, history in Acts, that Epaphras, a man uh, from Colossae, had gone to the churches at Ephesus, had heard the gospel, and then goes back to Colossae and begins planting churches, begins to declare the good news of Jesus Christ dead and resurrected. He begins to plant a church. Here in a few weeks, we're going to actually have a church planting Sunday where we talk about the importance of church planting. We're going to see how that actually connects in with this everlasting life and the spread of the good news that there is actually immortality available to all people. We're going to be talking about that, and Epaphras did it. Now, we get the idea from, again, looking at Acts, that Epaphras, at the time of the writing of the book of Colossians, is likely with Paul in Rome while he is actually there in slavery, actually in prison, and he's in Rome. And Epaphras probably was there delivering the bad news about what was happening to this small church in Colossae. Only three years previous, there was this church plant. Now it was being picked apart by false theologies from false teachers. So Epaphras had gone there to Rome and had told Paul about what was happening there. And that's where we get this book. What we see is, is that Paul is writing the Colossians to tell them that this horrible, heretical teaching was not from God, and that he had the authority to bring correction there. And the first thing that he wants to answer is, who is Jesus? Paul means to actually settle the issue for the Colossians, and not only for the Colossians, he wants to solve it for you too. Now, you might hear the title of this section, Who is Jesus?, and go, oh great, okay, an evangelistic message on Easter, I get it, I know who Jesus is, I'm actually going to tune out. I don't need to learn any new things about Jesus, but here's where you're wrong. The book of Colossians was actually written to the brothers at the church in Colossae, and Paul was writing to give them assurance of who Jesus was, and he talks about Jesus in some specific ways. So we don't just see that he's uh, talking to non-believers, this is not primarily an evangelistic message. If that were so, Paul wouldn't have said this starting in chapter 1, verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might and for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of all the saints in light. Does that sound like an evangelistic message or does it sound like he's actually calling out to the Christians at the church in Colossae and saying, you, you must be certain of who Jesus is. And so I invite you this morning, Christian, to know who Jesus is is. Verse 9, it says something very specific about who Jesus is. It says, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's a pretty specific statement. All the fullness of deity. So all of God dwells 
not just in some kind of amoeba, not just in some kind of spiritual state, actually dwells bodily in Jesus. Now, what do we get from that? We get the wonder of the fact that God has been incarnate, that God himself came in human form. And so oftentimes we hear that, but it just seems so disconnected by centuries and centuries of human being. Here's what you need to hear this morning. Jesus was just like you. He had a body just like you. He was just like you. He had flesh and blood. He felt pain just like you. He wept just like you. He learned the word of God just like you. He was taught it, and then he teaches it. Jesus dwelled bodily. But all of the fullness, all the whole fullness of God dwelled in him unlike you. So we hear that there is something specific about Jesus and that he is fully deity. That's the first thing that we need to know about Jesus. The second is in verse 10. It says that he is the head of all rule and authority. All authority under heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Every bit of it. All of the power and authority for all of heaven and all of earth has been given to him. And he declares to his disciples, therefore, go and make disciples of every nation. He says, I've got all of the authority. I've got all of the power. Jesus declares here, Paul is restating that he is the head of all rule and all authority. Verse 11 says something even more particular. It says that in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, what does that mean? That, that's very foreign language. I get it. It's an unusual thing to talk about on Easter, maybe in particular. But here we get the idea that Jesus is doing something to us, and it's not bodily. It's actually spiritual. And it's not just New Testament kind of circumcision, a circumcision made without hands. It's Deuteronomy chapter 30, where we are circumcised in our hearts. It is not merely a flesh example, a cutting of flesh, a removal of flesh. It is something that Christ is the mark on Christians. What we see is, is that Christ is our mark. He is deity, he is head, and he is circumciser of the soul. He marks and sets apart his handiwork. Then we see in verse 12, it says, you are buried with him in baptism. So there's this uh, thing that happens in baptism where you are buried with him in his death in baptism, going underneath the water, but you are also in baptism raised with him. So it is not just that he is deity. It is not just that he is head. It is not just that he is circumciser. It is that he is the one that raises and that we are raised with In John chapter 11, when Jesus is talking there with Mary, who has just lost Lazarus, her beloved brother, the beloved friend of Jesus, Jesus declares, I am the resurrection and the life. We don't just see that he is deity. We don't just see that he is all of these things. We see that he is the resurrection. That is who Jesus is. And then in verse 15, it says that he is the disarmer. He's the disarmer. It says he disarmed the rulers in authority. He has authority over them. He is the head of them, and he takes their tools of war away. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. If we were to summarize all of this, if we were to answer in one single sentence, who is Jesus out of Colossians chapter 2, we must say that he is the victor. He is the victor. 
that he in his resurrection is actually Christus victor. He is the one that is victorious over death. Who is Jesus? He is the victor. So, if he is the victor, we must not be fooled. That's our second point this morning. Paul says that if, uh, that, uh, that that's who Jesus is, so don't let false teachers disarm and shame you. Verse 8, look at it with me. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. What this is telling us is not to be fooled because if you are fooled, you will be taken into captivity. You will be enslaved. What is this enslavement? How does it come to you? It comes by way of false teaching. We don't read it here in the English quite as plainly, but there's good evidence to suggest throughout the book that the, uh, the teaching that was being taught to the Colossians actually had a name, and it was called the philosophy. Not just any philosophy, it was the philosophy. That was what the Colossians were having to contend with, was things that were being brought about through philosophy, things that were deceptive, that were trying to pull them away and enslave them. Now, for those of us who have been through Galatians recently, this sounds very familiar. This is coming from Paul. What we need to know is that we are not to be fooled, because if we are fooled by philosophy and deceit, we will be taken captive So what we need to understand is not that Paul is anti-philosophy. I don't think that he is. I think that he engages with human philosophy. But what I think we need to know is that there are philosophies out there that are actually trying to pull us away from Christ and actually trying to put us in a grave, actually trying to captivate and enslave us. But what kind of thing is happening here. We get the idea that there are uh, these philosophies out there, but maybe that philosophy that was there in Colossae is not the one that you are struggling with today. So what I want to ask you this morning is, what are the ideas that are potentially holding you captive? What are the philosophies that are actually trying to pull you away and enslave you? Are there political philosophies that are actually trying to put you in chains? Are there messages from our culture about beauty that are trying to tell you lies that are putting you in a grave of death? What philosophies are you hearing right now that are tempting you to pull you away from Christus Victor? It gets a little bit more clear. It helps us identify what these things are. Saying just simply the philosophy doesn't maybe help us. Saying deceit, sometimes it's very hard because our hearts, our own hearts are deceitful above all things. And so we ourselves are trying to deceive ourselves. So what are the things that Paul is trying to talk about? He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according, he uses that word twice, according to human tradition, and according to the elemental spirits of the world. What are those traditions that are trying to pull you away? Is there an American tradition that you prize more than Christus Victor? Is there a capitalist tradition that is pulling you into a grave of wealth? What is it that's pulling you away? What human tradition? Now, listen, I'm a fairly, don't hear this politically, hear it like uh, philosophically, I'm a fairly conservative person, just in general. Slow and patient, incremental change, I take things very slowly. I actually like tradition quite a lot. 
Our, our uh, church here is actually uh, very interesting. We're very young, most of us, and we're doing things in a very traditional way. There's a reason why we're doing that. We're trying to actually see that those traditions form us. But there are traditions that are not focused on Jesus that might actually be seeking to bind up and to enslave. I wonder what those are possibly for you. We're told that there are these elemental spirits. How do we understand that? We're told that we are to test the spirits in other parts of Scripture. We're to know from 1 John that there are good and bad. No, no, no. There are things, there are spirits that are from God and there are spirits from the world. We know and understand that we are to test those spirits and that we are to know, verse 8 says here in Colossians, that they are not according to Christ. Whether or not they are according to Christ makes a big, big difference. It says in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 18 and 25, it says that every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is of God. We can understand that from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, that for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is what? It is the power of God. That's what we're talking about here this morning. Every time that you hear the word power, I want you to see a lace going through Scripture and tying things together. Those who are being saved... It is the power of God. The cross is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discerning of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God, Through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jew and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What do we glean from this? How do we understand it? When it says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, what we need to understand is that there is a worldly wisdom that has the appearance of false wisdom. But if we take on to it, if we, uh, if we refine it, if we boil it down, what we'll, deci- uh, what we'll decipher is, is that it's no wisdom at all and that it certainly does not lead to immortality. It does not lead to everlasting life. The Jews seek signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but God actually in his wisdom decided to reveal himself not in wisdom but in a person in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why verse 23 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, we preach Christ crucified. Why? Verse 24 says that Christ is the power of God and he is the wisdom of God. And that's how back in Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 it says that Jesus has forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the debt against us. Don't be fooled. The world's wisdom will captivate and will enslave you. You, Christian, cannot be fooled 
you must believe in Christ. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. He's the uh, full, whole fullness of God. He's the triumphant. He's the victor. We cannot be fooled, but then we next need to know and understand why we were raised to live. This resurrection power of God in Christ has demands on us and it has effects on us. Read in verse 6 with me. Therefore, as you received Christ, Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. This is where we get our first point of application this morning. If you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, if, you, uh, if you're trying, uh, if you're trusting not to be fooled, what you need to know is, is that you are to walk in Christ. What does that mean? It means that you're supposed to be a disciple of Christ. You're supposed to learn from him. You're supposed to walk like he walks. Go where he goes. His people are supposed to be your people. His God, his father is supposed to be your God and father. You are to be a disciple, verse 6 says. Walk in Christ Jesus our Lord. Second, in verse 7, it says this, that you are rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. This is using tree language of saying that you are supposed to be so rooted down into Christ that you are immovable. You cannot be fooled. You're supposed to be so established, so built up like a building that that building is not built on sand. It's built on the rock of Christ and is immovable. You cannot be fooled. You know that the full fullness of deity dwells in Jesus Christ, and you can't be taken captive by any kind of philosophy. Be rooted, be built up in him, be established in what? In faith. I've been having lots of conversations recently, especially with a group of guys in our church that's uh, uh, seeking to become either elders or deacons, just being developed as leaders. And one of the things that we've been talking a lot about is the minutia of a lot of doctrine. And what I've found in myself is that God has uh, transformed me over the course of time. I was talking with my mom about this yesterday. We were at her uh, birthday, and we went around the table saying, these are the words that really uh, define how we think about you, Mom. And I didn't have to think very long because I use her as an example all the time of one thing in particular, and that's faith. I remember having conversations with my mom when I was in uh, high school and just doubting my faith, not understanding how this verse relates to that verse, how this could possibly be true and that could possibly be true. It just kind of tormented me. I had to go deeper and deeper into God's word to uh, even find just some amount of understanding of how these things went together. Faith is not a gift that I possess. But I would talk to my mom about it and she would just say, I think that that's the way that it is. And I'd say, why? And she'd have a few reasons, but ultimately, she was a woman of faith. And, and one of the things that I've realized recently after years and years of you know, doubt and struggle and wrestle and all of these things is I looked up and for you know, five to 10 years now, I feel like God has given me a foundation of faith. Not doubting quite as much, not needing every single answer, but being able to lean into Christ and just simply put my faith in him. Just believe that the things that are said in his word are true. You can be a really good student. You can be a really good theologian. You can be very smart. I hope that you are. But at the end of the day, the things that we see here, we often need a bedrock to take on faith. These things are true. Are they or aren't they? 
That's what you're going to have to learn. That's what you're going to have to decipher. That's what you're going to have to decide. Rooted, built up, established in faith. But then it says this. It says that you're not just uh, rooted and grounded and built up and established. It doesn't just say that you're walking like a disciple. It says that you're abounding in thanksgiving. There is no other disposition for those who are redeemed. There is no other disposition for those who are raised from the grave. There is no other disposition for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, that they weren't just buried with him in baptism, but they were always uh, also raised to eternal life than one of utter and complete gratitude. It's what the world is missing right now. The reason why everybody's at each other's throats and uh, willing to cancel one another is because there is no gratitude for this life that we have been given generally, but amongst Christians it's particularly egregious because we haven't just been given a general life, a short life, a vapor of a life. We've been raised to an eternal life, and I wonder, are you thankful for it? Does it, does it actually conjure up gratefulness in your heart that Jesus Christ both died but then also rose from the grave for you? It says this in verse 10, just expounding on this with a mysterious verse, a curious verse. It says that you have been filled in him. You walk with him, you're rooted in him, you're built up with him, you're established in him, you're thankful for him and all that he's done, but you are also filled in him. What does this mean? In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, has come form. He, he, he's broken free from the tomb of death, and he's there, and he spends about 40 days with the disciples, teaching them, telling them what's to come. But, and they still don't fully, completely understand, and he says, that's okay, because I am going to sit at the right hand of the Father so that I can send you the Spirit of God. He actually gives uh, his spirit to us that we might be filled in the spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And this is the essence of the gospel. You were raised up and you were filled in him. Verse 12, look. You were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him. You were raised like he was raised. How was he raised? By the power of God. Remember when we were talking earlier about how the nation that possessed the power to raise people from the grave and to give them everlasting life would be infinitely powerful. That they would be, that their kingdom would be, uh, in a human sense, it's somewhat eternal, immovable. They would be rich. They would be founded. They would be well defended, that country that could raise people from the dead. Because what, what use is it going to war with them if all they can do is raise people from the dead? There's great power there. Now I want to ask you another question. What about the God who will, ra who will raise billions on the final day? What a powerful God. What an amazing, powerful nation he will raise. What a king that sits on a throne of resurrection and resurrects a kingdom and establishes it forever. That is immense power. I wonder if you came here thinking and wondering about the resurrection of God, but I wonder if you've thought about just the sheer power of it, the power of the resurrection 
The Father's power raised Jesus, and through faith, this verse says, his resurrection raises you also. Verse 13 says, and you who were dead in your trespasses, those things that we put on Jesus Christ, those sins that we cast upon him, we were dead in those things before we put them on Jesus. But him just simply taking and justifying us does not mean that we are raised into eternity. And that's why verse 13 says, and you who were dead in your trespasses, God made what? Look at that word. Look at it with me. What does that word say about you? It says that you're alive. And it doesn't just say that you're alive. It says that you're alive with a purpose. You're not just how. God had the power to raise you. Why? Why would he raise you? Because he wants you to be alive and together with him. God makes you alive in the resurrection with a purpose. And that purpose is being together with him. It's to be in eternal fellowship with him. In Genesis, God creates man and woman after his image, and he places them in a garden of fellowship. He knew them. He walked with them. We were always intended to live eternally with him there in that garden forever, and we reached out, and we took hold of sin, and everything around us died, including fellowship with the Father. And here in the resurrection, what God does is restores eternal fellowship. You will walk in a garden of eternal life, in resurrected life, in fellowship life with him forever. Who is Jesus? He's the victor. How can you be, avoid being fooled by false teaching? You can plant yourself with Christ in his triumphal victory and you can stand with him. How can you live a resurrected life? You can be a disciple you can be rooted, grounded, established in faith with him. You can be resurrected with him. You can have his mark put on you in baptism. We can be alive with Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is ruler over everything. But this king that we celebrated in his coronation of crowns, in his throne of rugged wood, after dying to cancel the debts of his enemies, forgives them. And the power of God the Father raised Jesus and raises us up as first fruits in the resurrection kingdom. This testimony is sure. Christ is risen. No, no, no. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. As surely as he is risen, you will rise also so that you can live with him. Let's give thanks for that this morning. God and Father, we thank you for the testimony of the resurrection. Lord, this wor world would be dark and bleak and hopeless without a resurrection. Lord, we believe that Jesus Christ came, that all of the fullness of God dwelled there in his body, that he lived a perfect, unstained life, just like we always should have, that he was raised up on a cruel Roman cross to suffer and die for our sins, that he was placed in a tomb that no one had been buried in before, 
and that three days later he was resurrected, he burst forth, and that the greatest news in human history isn't that Ponce de Leon found the fountain of youth or some scientist somewhere will uh, add a few more years to the end of our lives. The greatest news, Father, is that you have power and that, God and Father, that you raise us with Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would convince our hearts of it Lord, that as we take communion, as we sing this morning, that we would be a hopeful, joyful people, that we would stand alongside of our victor in triumph over sin and death, and that we would look forward to the horizon of fellowship with you forever. And we pray all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.